Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. There are many political systems in the world, and they are all unique and special in their own way. But Ireland is, in many ways, more unique and special than most. Because Ireland is a fairly stable democracy, which happens to live right next to one of the world's most notorious international flashpoints, many people around the world tend not to realize the odd nature of this system. But in the past weeks, headlines the world over have been drawn away from their other recent obsessions and towards the workings of the little democracy that could. In Ireland, Sinn Féin has rocked the political boat for the first time in decades and delivered a huge setback for the main political parties of that country. This shocking turn of events has pundits and commentators around the world shaking their heads and frothing at the mouth. The country in question has begun to deal with this shocking turn of events by, let me see, calmly and deliberately finishing the vote count, running the votes through some fancy equation to apportion seats, and beginning the slow, slow process of forming a coalition government. Apparently, this could take months. If all this has left you more confused than the first time you saw an advertisement for Riverdance, fear not. Agora is here to help. My name is Benjamin Jacobs, and I host Wittenberg to Westphalia, a history podcast on this network. In my wayward youth, I spent a embarrassingly large amount of time studying Irish history, but I'm not the talent for today's program. With me today is Zach Twomley, host of When Diplomacy Fails, PhD candidate at Trinity College Dublin, and former lecturer in contemporary Irish politics at Dublin Technical College. Zach, thanks for being here tonight. I fear that you are our only hope. Well, in that case, we're all screwed. But it's a great, <laughs> great day when I get to be on Agora's official feed. I feel all special and important. And it's great to talk to you as well, Benjamin, because... We go way back, all the way back to Harvard in 2018. Yes. So it's great to be back again. <laughs> we go back a little bit further than that. It's good to talk to you again. It's always a fun time. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's leap right into it then. Zach, I don't think most of our listeners really appreciate how confused they actually are. So let's start with a primer in Irish politics. Um, how does Ireland's political system work on a constitutional level? Uh, how do elections work and stuff? How is a government formed? Who has the power, etc.? Right, okay. Well, there's a lot of things to unpack in that question. So I'll just start from the very beginning. Now, granted, in my defense, while you introduced me in a lovely way there as a, as a former lecturer, uh, the thing about lecturing in something like this is you essentially forget everything that you learned while you were lecturing. <laughs> so... 
I'll I'll probably just like being a student. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I might forget something and have to touch back on it later. But yeah, for for all intents and purposes, Ireland is a parliamentary democracy. It's got a bicameral parliamentary system, so an upper and a, a lower house, basically two houses. And and our president is head of state, not not Queen Elizabeth II, despite what some people think. <laughs> Ireland is not part of the Commonwealth. Ireland's not part of anything like that. Ireland's its own separate republic and has been so since 1949. And ever since then, we've essentially done our own thing with varying degrees of success. Our lower... See, the reason why, and I'll, I'll do my best to kind of translate because a lot of the terms we use because we're Irish and proud like that a lot of the terms we use are in Irish so that can tend to confuse sometimes I've heard a lot of foreign pundits talking about like the main parties so Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael and Sinn Féin but I'm actually going to tell you what those names mean but that's later (laughs) on so if you want to find out that then stick around till later but yeah so we have the lower house so essentially if you want to compare this to Britain our version of the House of Commons would be the doll, and dolls just means Parliament. And then we have the Upper House, which is the Senate. Well, we call it the Shannad, which is Irish for Senate. See how clever we are. And in the doll, so in our House of Commons, essentially, there's only 160 seats, which is far fewer than Britain's 650. So it is a smaller system. It's a smaller political system because obviously there's far fewer people living here. So it works that way. It's only actually recently been increased to 160 seats in the doll. Before then, it was an awkward number, 154 or 156, I think. So now it's nice because if someone gets a majority it's 80 seats which is a nice round number for my OCD senses and makes me very happy but yeah <laughs> so uh what we've got is essentially the doll is 160 seats the Shannon has 60 members or senators and the set the Shannon doesn't have much political power it's actually seen by some as an important control on the doll's power though even despite that there was after there was a referendum in 2013 to abolish the Shannad, which it obviously doesn't pass because we still have the Shannad, but there is right. talk about reforming that house and giving it more teeth. But this is yet to be implemented because fruit ripens very slowly in Ireland. If something needs to be done or reformed, you're going to be waiting a while. <laughs> but r- realistically, the Shannad it does it does rubber stamp the Doll's bills. It also has the power to debate them and to send amendments down to the Doll afterwards. And a senator, so someone sitting in the Shannad can put forward his own bills within the Shannad, and if they're passed in the Shannad, then they can be debated in the doll. So I just wanted to get the Shannad out of the way so that we don't have to talk about it ever again. Is that cool? Yeah. <laughs> Grand, okay. immediately forget all of that. <laughs> yeah, but just in case, like, in case someone asks you, oh, how does Ireland's parliamentary system work? You can tell them there's a Shannad, because... The, our our Senate really isn't talked about at all, and that should probably tell you all you need to know about it. But it's still important to mention it because of the very odd time it can do important stuff. But moving swiftly on, before we look at elections and stuff, I just want to clarify again <laughs> that the President and not Queen Elizabeth II is our head of state. And the reason why it's important to clarify that is because there can be some confusion because of Northern Ireland. Right. And if you weren't aware, because let's just... just so we're all absolutely on the same page. When we talk about the Republic of Ireland, we're talking about essentially six six eighths of the island, I would say. And then the upper kind of northeastern corner of the island 
is Northern Ireland, as it's called. Sometimes referred to in shorthand as Ulster, but that's not really correct. And that is part of the United Kingdom of Great Britain. For now, at least. We shall see. We'll more on that later. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Yeah, so presidential elections. Let's just talk about our president first of all. Presidential elections take place every seven years. The president is a vital part of our political system, but this isn't France, so our Taoiseach, or Prime Minister, who you'll be hearing a lot about later on, a Taoiseach holds the majority of the powers. Now, up until recently, the Taoiseach was Leo Varadkar because he was the leader of Fine Gael, and Fine Gael was the largest party in the Dáil. Obviously, this has all changed now, which is why we're here. Yes. Elections for the Dáil take place every five years, where everyone goes to the polls and chooses their TD or Chakti Dali to represent them in the Dáil. As we said as well, there is 160 seats to play for, so each of the 26 counties is divided into constituencies according to population most of the time. If you look at the constituencies in Dublin, you'll see that it's divided all over the place. There's like Dublin Bay South or Dublin, all all these different ones. So it's not just the case that every county sends it in uh, their own TDs. There are constituencies, as you'd probably expect from a country with a majority of its population living in and around Leinster. This is, that's the thing that I was most confused about from reading the articles, uh, because I I had a, I thought that it was sort of a Westminster style system with districts like that. But then reading all the articles, they're talking about proportional representation and stuff and uh, first choice. And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yes. I didn't think it worked on the German system. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's a very, uh, it's kind of our own thing. It's a very unusual system if you think about it too much. And really, I think every time an election comes along, Irish people as well are like, oh, our electoral system's kind of weird, isn't it? And people would be like, yeah, it is kind of weird. But we like it that way. And um, So as we said, with the constituencies in the country, They are supposed to be divided according to population, but they're also supposed to return anywhere from two to five TDs. And what that looks like on the day can really depend on how many first preference votes you get. So now it's time to talk about the technicalities of it all. This is the part where everyone either listens and thinks this is great or kind of zones out and and listens to something else. I'm by no means a political scientist, by the way, so I'm going to try and give you the briefest of refresher courses on our electoral system. I'll say it again, it's called Proportional Representation Single Transferable Vote, or PRSTV for short. I'm just going to call it PR because there's not enough time in the world, I suppose. But the aim of PR is to be as fair as possible. So the aim of it is to give all sorts of parties a chance to have a seat in the doll, well, what this looks like on paper is seen first and foremost when it comes time to vote. So to strip it back to basics, you're about to do your civic duty. You don't simply just tick the box beside the person you want to vote for. Instead, you're supposed to, or you can, give a list in order of preference. So you can put one, two, three, four. But this is why it's interesting, because just like there's nothing stopping you putting one beside Johnny Smith and doing nothing else, there's also nothing stopping you putting one beside Johnny Smith and then numbering all the way down, putting a descending number in every single box if you want to. So in the constituency of Wicklow, for example, we actually had the most candidates in Wicklow, and I think we had about 15 candidates. So if you wanted, you could put 
one all the way down to 15 beside each person. But you probably wouldn't want to do that because there were some serious fruits running in this constituency. <laughs> so you probably wouldn't want to do that. So are you, are you still with me there so far, Benjamin? Yes. Cool. <laughs> now, great. Now, the thing I'm confused about, because I'm, I'm familiar with uh, instant runoff voting systems in general, where, you know, you have your first preference, and then if that doesn't work, you get your second preference. So the fact that there's only one transferable vote is, um, I, I am very intrigued to see what comes next, because this, right. this all sounds insane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so basically, that's that's what the citizen is supposed to do. They're supposed to put one to two, etc., etc., beside the box, and that's literally all they have to do. What happens next is where things can appear more like chaos rather than organized chaos, because those blessed people who are supposed to count the results the next day are looking first and foremost for the first preference votes. In other words, they're going to count the number of ones beside each candidate's face, and if these candidates get enough ones beside their face, or first preference votes, to bring them past the quota... Sorry to interrupt, really quick. What's the quota? So, the quota is actually different depending on the constituency, and it's supposed to be calculated... (laughs) I know, it's supposed to be calculated according to population and how many actual seats are available. That's the idea anyway. But what you often see is that people can sometimes dispute the quota and they can also sometimes not even meet the quota but still be elected in extreme circumstances, which actually we will have to talk about because it happened a lot of times this in this in this election that we had. Oh, so Lord. yes. Okay. Yeah, so there's a quota, and in order to make that quota, you have to get a certain amount of first preference votes. But what happens to those twos and threes and fours that you might have put on your ballot paper? Well, if a candidate or candidates have already been elected, and if they won more first preference votes than they needed to match the quota, so for example, say you needed 11,000 first preference votes to actually be elected and you got 17,000, what would happen to all of those? Well, these extra or surplus votes are supposed to be separated out and given to each voter's second choices. Oh. Now this is where those two and two and three and four and five etc. numbers come into play, because Say you voted for Bobby and he got enough first preference votes to meet the quota, but then you gave a number two to his fellow party member Mary. Well, then Mary would find that she meets the quota on the other count. And this is often what happens with the larger parties who run several candidates in the same constituency. If you're going to give one for someone in a party, you're probably going to give two, if you're going to give out a two, to a similar party member. Maybe you won't, but odds are you probably will if you like that party. So, sometimes the logistics behind who gives their surplus numbers to who doesn't always make sense, and that's why it can be a really nail-biting thing for those party members who might have seen their colleagues get elected, but they missed out on a few thousand votes. And remember, again, there's nothing to stop someone voting for Johnny Smith and then putting a two or a three beside someone completely different in ideology and politics to him. Uh, Perhaps you might like the other person, or maybe you just want to watch the world burn. Uh, Either way. So um, am I still making sense? I know you have questions, but I will probably answer them at some stage in my spiel. 
Honestly, I'm in I'm in complete shocked, stunned silence. This is so <laughs> different from any other voting system I've ever heard of. Like, <laughs> and it, you know, the, the idea of uh, like I said, you know, runoff voting or uh, proportional representation isn't alien to me. But this is this is completely different from anything else <laughs> I've ever Great. heard of. This is crazy. <laughs> okay, keep going. <laughs> So we covered what happens in the case of there being some surplus votes to kind of hand out. But at this point, the counting process turns into something like a battle royale. Okay. We enter into the third phase. All of the surplus votes are counted and anyone who was going to have a relatively easy time of it has been elected. So you'd have several candidates at this point missing out from the quota. And sometimes they'd only be missing out from the quota by like a few hundred votes. If our fellow listeners are confused, don't worry because if you stick around till about about 10 minutes or so when I'm finished explaining how it all works, I'm going to give an example of my constituency in Wicklow where this process actually went down and hopefully by going through that example it'll actually be a lot clearer to you and to poor Benjamin who's freaking out right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So... Uh, remember what happens when candidates are short of the quota. They need to find a way to count those second, third, or fourth preference votes to try and make up the actual difference. But how can you do that when Billy No Mates, who got about 200 first preference votes, is still sitting there with a long beard and a smug face, and even though he's barely got any votes, he's still considered a viable candidate? What do you do about that? The solution is actually relatively simple. You, will, you start eliminating those people who are coming last in terms of first preference votes. And then, just like you did with the surplus votes in the second count, you start to count those people's second, third, fourth, etc. preference votes. Right. So, yeah, it, it turns into something of a battle royale. The place is very noisy as well because you have the press walking around, letting everyone know who made the quota or who didn't. And you have the announcer booming over the normally <laughs> screeching microphone and telling us who's eliminated, what the tally is, what the plan is going forward, etc., etc. And I know that it probably sounds very complicated, but they do have a big board, like a, a kind of electronically updated system telling you who is such and such amount and how long they have to go. And it can actually be quite exciting to watch. It, does this happen in each constituency? Yes, in each constituency. Generally, the... RT News, Radio Television is our kind of official sort of news station. That's what our TV license pays for. But their news crews will be hopping all around the country with all their different correspondents. <laughs> They're never so busy as they are at election time. But it can, it can be very interesting because some constituencies can really surprise. Some can be kind of business as usual. And some can just come out of nowhere and really surprise you. But so... Back to the technical part of it. Now, we said that those coming last in the count would be eliminated. So when I say last, I mean they got the least amount of first preference votes. So Billy No Mates only got 200 people to put a one beside his name, for instance. Right. Once they're eliminated, those blessed counters consult the ballot papers again. And they deduce, and I'm just going to continue with our example, they deduce how many second, third, and fourth preference votes Billy No Mates actually got so he might not have gotten all that many from those 200 people who voted for him first but he also might have gotten several because if they voted for him then they're probably going to vote for others too odds are 
they might have only given Billy a one and, and nothing else at all, but it's entirely possible that 50 people who voted for Billy No Mates also voted for Mary as their number two, and those 50 extra votes could bring Mary closer to the quota. So it's all about getting to the quota. Hopefully that clarifies it a little bit. Yeah. So so let me let me say back what you've said so far in in a different way, uh, just to make sure that I'm understanding this. So the first the first phase is you count everyone's number one votes, and you count up to the quota for each candidate. Then round two is you have everything past the quota. You go down to the number two or number three or whatever, and you apportion them out to people who haven't met the quota yet. And then round three is that you go to the people who didn't meet the quota and you see if maybe they uh, and you go to their number two and three votes and you put them up to other people who haven't met the quota yet. Is that about right? Yeah. <laughs> uh essentially yes now it doesn't always follow there isn't always a there isn't always a second or third well there's generally a second round but there isn't always a third round because like i said constituencies can sometimes be very predictable and sometimes people will just vote for the obvious ones but it's it's when the votes are split very Mm -hmm. evenly or when one party does particularly well and takes all the first preference votes, which is why this election was so interesting, because that really happened on a massive scale with Sinn Féin, as okay. we'll talk about. But yes. that that is essentially, that is pretty much correct. Okay. The goal of every candidate is to make the quota, and how they make that quota depends on pretty much who makes it first or who's eliminated and who gives them their other preference votes. So every vote does count, even if you just put a number two or a three not really thinking, mm-hmm. that could be enough to push someone over the quota and actually get them elected. But yeah, anyway, so okay. so we run we run through all the candidates and we eliminate each of the lowest polling people in turn, and then we calculate their other preferences. And by the time you've burned through a few, the picture should be a bit clearer and most of the candidates should be elected. Okay. On some occasions, though, things can go right down to the wire. And that brings me to the example of Wicklow that I was going to bring up earlier. Okay. And that how ho- that, that hosted a very interesting story. And I think by talking about it, I'll actually clarify the picture a bit better and actually be a better explanation than what I gave earlier on. So remember, any parties' names I mention, I'm going to deal with them in time, but I'm going to do my best to not mention any names and just kind of talk about the actual practicalities of what happened okay so i was i was obviously watching this on the edge of my seat because it's my home constituency and obviously i voted and it's also kind of fresh in my mind so it probably just makes sense to talk about it so we're just trying to picture wicklow which is a county but also a constituency which is in itself quite unusual but wicklow is just south of dublin so it's a fairly important part of the country it's known as the garden of ireland it's where a lot of people live if they're going to commute to Dublin. It's part of the commuter belt, etc., etc. Sure. Lovely place, Wicklow, but I'm biased. But <laughs> what you need to know about Wicklow is that their quota is about 11,000. So you need about 11,000 uh, first preference votes to actually get elected. Now, it's not exactly 11,000, so I'm just going to make things simpler by calling it 11,000. Just in case the sticklers for details out there being like, well, it's not, I live in Wicklow, it's not actually 11,000. <laughs> we're making it, we're making it simple, okay? Because there's people out there who will say that. Yeah. Uh, okay, so, yeah. A, a common theme in this election was the success of Sinn Féin, and Wicklow was absolutely no exception to that. 
the Sinn Féin candidate topped the poll with more than 17,000 votes and he only needed 11,000. So 17,000 people or more than that, in other words, put a number one beside this guy's name, even though he only needed 11,000 people to do that act. Of course, we know what happens next. After everyone takes a deep breath and they recover from the shock, it's time to count Mr. Sinn Féin's other preference votes. So remember, they might have put a number one beside his name, but what about the other numbers that they put on the ballot paper? It's okay. quite unlikely that all 17,000 people who voted just put a one. They're probably likely to put a two, three, four, five, etc., etc. So the surplus votes, let's say in this case 6,000, are now calculated, and these other preferences are punched into the machine, and Zach watches this whole thing unfold fairly breathlessly. Incredibly enough, though, Mr. Sinn Féin's transfers aren't actually enough to elect a new candidate on the first round. And since he so exceeded the quota, we know that there's going to be fewer first preference votes to share out anyway. So for the record, just to put it in context, it's very rare that someone would get 17,000 first preferences when they only need about 11,000. Normally they get about 10 or 11 or 12, and then they'd be rounded up. But by getting a by getting 17,000, he's essentially taken those votes from other people. So it's going to be harder for them right. to make their way up to the quota, if that makes sense. So Yeah, I'm getting it. Cool. So after looking at my previous explanation from earlier on, we know what happens next. In Wicklow, we're going to have to start eliminating those candidates who were lowest down on the list. And remember, I said there was about 15 of them in all. Now, usually, well, unusually, this process went on in Wicklow for nearly two whole days. And it wasn't until that they eliminated the guy in sixth place in this five-seat constituency that everyone knows where they stand. <laughs> Normally, they don't have to go through all that process. But to put it in perspective again, the person who was, like, second to be elected was only elected on, I think, the 14th or 15th count. So oh, it took a long time. Yeah, it was a long, long <laughs> process. Yeah. And even after eliminating everyone else except for the top five... I think a few of the top five, the bottom two of those top five that got elected, they didn't even make the quota. But I mean, they had to be deemed elected because there was no other option at this point. It was just it was just something that had to be wow. done. So that is what people mean when they say Sinn Féin had such an impact on the election. It wasn't just that they captured the majority of first preference votes in literally every demographic apart from, I think it was the over 65s. But it was the fact that they captured so many of them that there was fewer to go around. And this led to an even more series of anxious scenes than normal when it came to counting. Yeah. But that is hopefully our political and electoral system rounded up and explained. Hopefully Benjamin hasn't burst a few. <laughs> I'm not dead yet, no. Um, <laughs> no, that that's fascinating. That's a really fascinating system. Uh, man, I, I have a couple of follow-up questions just uh, really quick. So, um, th th so this sort of explains, I read in a, a couple articles that they would have done even better if they'd want, run more people. And so now I'm sort of understanding uh, what, that means that like they, they only yeah. ran one or two people in each constituency and so they sucked mm. up all the number one votes and then there wasn't like the people ha had to sit there in front of their ballot going well i know i'm voting for them for number one but i don't know what i'm doing with the rest of them <laughs> so exactly and 
And, you know, most conversations in people's houses after the election would be something to the effect of, oh, well, who did you vote for? Well, I gave such and such a person my number one. Ah, yeah, but I gave a three and, and a four to him because I felt sorry for him, or <laughs> I gave a five to her because it's that it's that kind of, it's yeah. that kind of uh, <laughs> system, you know? It sounds ridiculous, but that's kind of what we have, and... Yeah, I can't imagine having anything else, to be honest. But yeah, it's it's very true about Sinn Féin not running enough candidates. And you imagine if they ran two in Wicklow, because the one Sinn Féin guy got 17,000, they could have been shared. Those yeah. votes could have been shared, and he could have, like, maybe not necessarily gotten his guy elected, but he could have been a lot closer. Who knows what could have yeah. happened, but certainly yeah. there was far more first preferences to play for with Sinn Féin than normally. Yeah. Okay, so the, the second follow-up question, just really quick. Are So are the people counting these votes, are they paid? I would assume so, yeah. I mean, it is, it's a job that people, like, the whole thing is, is very well organized. Like, in your constituencies, you have, obviously, all these different towns and villages and everything, and there'd be somewhere where you would go to actually go and vote. And those people who are sitting there saying... Oh, to then they basically tell you how to vote. They say put a one right. and a two, and just in case you don't know, they're all paid as well. So I okay. assume they're paid by the state. I've never really thought that much into it, but yeah, yeah. I I assume that's I assume that's what happens. Okay, yeah, because the the election workers in the U.S. aren't paid, and it's becoming more and more of a problem every year. So okay, cool. They're not paid. Whoa. No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good grief! I, it's such a problem. It's such a problem. Uh, and and well, and I should say that each state has their own system. <laughs> so ah, it's not great. nationally standardized, but in most states, they're not paid. And yeah. Okay, so back to Ireland. Um, hmm. Leaving aside the US's electoral oddities, we talked a little bit about what happened, but let's, let's dig into it more. Um, up until a few weeks ago, Ireland had two main political parties, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. Uh, Fianna Fáil? Fianna Fáil, yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm, my Irish pronunciation isn't as good as it should be because despite spending 25 years of my life studying Irish history, it's all been written. <laughs> so... <laughs> Well, as the king of pronunciation, don't worry, I'm here to <laughs> okay. help. Okay, okay. <laughs> so, Fungal and Fianna Fáil, uh, were the two main parties, and they were that way for decades. Um, so could you sort of explain their, their history and, uh, you know, why they're so different? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think we should start, first of all, with their names, because it's funny, they do flummox people, not just yourself, Benjamin. A lot yeah. of people have trouble pronouncing them. And even sometimes in this country, they're pronounced wrong, or people just say FG or FF because they're sick of saying it. But right. what you first you have is Fine Gael. Fine Gael is Irish for tribe or, or group of Gaels or group of Irish, so... That's where, essentially, that's the etymology of their name. Mm -hmm. They're actually a successor to Cumann na Gael, and Cumann na Gael was one of the original parties to split off from Sinn Féin. The other main party split off from Sinn Féin was Fianna Fáil. So Fine Gael is traditionally seen as kind of centre-right, but it's not... Like, it's... A lot of these definitions and a lot of these impressions are kind of arguments that have been built up by either side to use almost as ammunition against each other and probably when when pundits talk about the different parties the two main parties they might categorize them 
as far as their economic policies are concerned, but neither their economic policies nor their kind of social policies really make all that much sense. Yeah. So yeah, when I when I, I was doing research on them, you know, uh, just before the election, just like a, a couple of years back, and just like I was looking at the Wikipedia article, and I just noticed that Wikipedia listed them both as center right. <laughs> and then yeah. I was like, wait, what? And then I started looking at their policies. And I'm like, they're both center right <laughs> from an yeah. international and standpoint. <laughs> exactly. But that's that's the thing. But the the issue with our two main or formerly two main political parties, if you want to go that way. Yeah. The issue with them is that they're not differentiated by any sense of ideology or economics, really. Now, they might tell you they will tell you something different because they have to justify the fact that they're both different. But right. really, the thing that that distinguishes both parties from each other is their history and is their record in government and the civil war. The civil war was probably, I mean, listing things that happened in Ireland in terms of importance isn't always right. easy. But certainly the civil war is almost underrated because it effectively spawned our political system. Yeah, I'll talk about that more in a sec, but... I want to just talk about Fianna Fáil because I talked about Fine Gael. So Fianna Fáil is Irish for, and get this, Soldiers of Destiny, if you can believe that. <laughs> That's dramatic. So yeah, very, very ambitiously named political party. They were actually founded in 1927 or no, 1926 it was. Right. And they were founded by Eamon de Valera, who most people have heard of. And the reason why Eamon de Valera founded this party and split off from Sinn Féin is because he wanted to enter into government, essentially. He wanted to enter into government in the Irish Free State. In order to do that, you had to do what was called the Oath of Allegiance and essentially swear your loyalty to the British Crown. This was in the 1920s when Ireland was independent, but technically a dominion of the British Empire. So we were sovereign, but we still had to basically kowtow to Britain whenever we wanted to do anything. And part of this kowtowing was us acknowledging the supremacy of the king over our affairs. Now, in practical terms, it didn't mean all that much, but in emotional terms for all these Irish rebels to say that we acknowledge the king, obviously it was a very big deal, so they didn't want to do it. So nobody in Sinn Féin at this point entered into politics, and those parties that split off from Sinn Féin, so Cuma Nigel, which became Fine Gael, and Fianna Fáil weren't exactly comfortable about swearing an oath of allegiance, but they had to do it because otherwise they couldn't enter into politics. Right. Eamon de Valera famously made a point of putting the Bible on the other side of the room and swearing an oath of loyalty to it <laughs> from the other side, just just to show in the direction how, of the how Bible. Little, yeah, how little he believed in what he was saying. But it, it worked in a way because it got Fianna Fáil into power. Right. And another thing that you need to know about these two sides, about Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, is their civil war past, which I mentioned, but it's it's kind of complex, so I don't want us to trip over it. But broadly speaking, during the Irish War of Independence, there was a group of Irish rebels who wanted to continue the war and a group who wanted to end the war. Yeah. And those who wanted to those who wanted to end the war Obviously, they won out in the end and they did end the war. But those group of Irish rebels who wanted the war to continue were so upset with the terms that were offered by the British that they actually declared a war against the Irish state and thus the civil war was born. And it's looked upon very negatively because 
realistically, what are you going to do? What like these rebels, are they going to bully the actual government into making war against Britain and continuing the war? It was it was pointless and it was wasteful. Yeah. And actually more Irish people died during the Civil War than during the Irish War of Independence. And I think during right. the Rising combined as well. It was yeah. a terrible, terrible time. And it really did kind of fracture the country ideologically. But as a result of that, Fianna Fáil, when they were founded in 1926, they were able to present themselves as anti-treaty. So they were the ones under Eamon de Valera who refused to acknowledge the existence of the Irish Free State in the beginning. They were the ones who argued for the war to continue, and they were the ones who essentially started the civil war against the pro-treaty side. So Fianna Fáil, now this, this is very much, it's kind of juvenile, almost slagging, but when my friends want to criticize each other for supporting one party or the other, if you're supporting Fine Gael, then you're called pro-treaty, among other things. And if you're supporting <laughs> Fianna Fáil, you, you try to present yourself as anti-treaty and part of the kind of Republican ethos and all that kind of nonsense. So, so remind, me, remind me, how many years ago was the treaty? Yeah, 19, so believe it or not, this was a century ago. This was a century ago, yeah. Literally, yeah. like, the Civil War ended in 1923, so... When people talk about momentous political changes that happened, like, a few weeks ago, they're not lying. Like, it was a very big deal. And now bear in mind as well, once Fianna Fáil essentially became its own party in 1926 under Eamon de Valera, Eamon de Valera basically became the bad smell that Ireland couldn't get rid of. He was Taoiseach <laughs> and leader of Fianna Fáil for, I think, two decades, certainly during the Second World War anyway. Yeah, And then after that, he seemed like he was going to retire from political life, but instead he became the president of Ireland for, I think, two terms. So he stuck around for a very long time, and he was there for the 50th anniversary of the Easter Rising in 1966, too. He was president at that stage. So it is, it's a, it's a long kind of continuous story of essentially defining yourself according to things that happened well, now it's nearly 100 years ago. But as mm -hmm. time goes on, of course, these things will seem less and less relevant. And the only things really now that define these parties, because obviously no one remembers what the Civil War was like. No one is still alive from that time. So you're defining yourself based on this culture and tradition and several decades of essentially having a, a different party and doing your best to present it as distinct. And now there could be people listening now who support Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil or whose families have always voted for either or. And that's grand, obviously, you do you. But I think especially in the last few years, and we'll talk about recent political history as well and why yeah. the kind of differences between them have been blurred somewhat by political agreements they made together. And especially now in the last few weeks, people are talking increasingly, and I called it, I maintain I called this, but they're talking about a grand coalition between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, something that has never, ever happened before. And if something like that does happen, then that'll be like the ultimate breaking of the barriers between the two sides, really. This is one of those great times where we, we really get to one of the importances of studying history in terms of just understanding what the heck is going on. <laughs> like, exactly, if you look at, yes. If you look at them 
from now like nothing makes sense but if you look at the history it's like oh they were the same party they split in two over a tactical decision about the treaty and then they've just persisted as a separate as separate parties so of course they have no ideological differences other than this one thing about the treaty yeah exactly that is that is literally it just to have the conversation are there any real ideological policy differences to speak of before we move on um, well, if you're keeping a keen eye on Ireland, you might have noticed in the last few years we passed several referendums. So we actually passed one on marriage equality. Mm-hmm. We passed one on abortion. So abortion is no longer illegal in Ireland, and it was for a very long time. Yeah. Um, there's a few. I think there was another one. There was marriage equality, and there was yeah. Yeah. So those are the two main ones. And now again, if you were to look at the actual party that was in power when those were passed defined Fine Gael as a centre-right party yeah. supposedly would bring connotations of conservatism and all that kind of thing but yeah. that's another reason why people are starting to really or have begun to even more than usual question is there really that much of a difference between Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil like you could bring it down to economic policies but <laughs> to to most of us, having seen what Fianna Fáil did to the economy over the times of the Celtic Tiger, and having seen, seen or, or lived through what Fine Gael did to try and pick up the pieces, it seems like both parties really aren't especially efficient when it comes to managing the economy and actually making things better. Or if they do try and make things better, the the general perception is that the little guy or the average guy is the one that suffers and their rich friends or their well-connected friends aren't really going to be feeling the pinch in their pocket the same way we are. Yeah. And there is, it certainly does seem like there's a disconnect at times, at least between our politicians and the wider public. There's, and I don't know how widespread this perception is in the United States, but certainly over here, if someone is a good person and they get into politics we generally expect it to go one or two ways. Either they'll be a force for good or they'll get corrupted. And the cynic in most people, when they hear that someone has gone into politics, they say, oh, they must have done it for the money because the money (laughs) is very good. Oh, okay. And connections and what have you can lead to corruption and such. Yeah. Well, so that's actually an interesting question uh, point because um, yeah, I checked a few like international corruption indices in the lead up to this conversation. And Ireland's not that bad (laughs) no no it's not not certainly it's not as blatant or as obvious as say the likes of i don't know brazil or maybe ukraine or something like that but like it shouldn't be you know we're supposed to be a stable democracy we're supposed to be like the shiny example in the european union on how to recover from an economic crash all these things were supposed to be but we have endemic problems in society and a major problem in that is and it could just be a perception but certainly the perception isn't helped by how people act that there's a lot of people that don't have very much and there's a small amount of people who have far too much and are stopping everyone else from getting any access to it but i suppose that's the problem in all countries and probably will be until the end of time but i think this last election and we'll talk a bit more about this but this last election was really people were talking an awful lot about change, which I know might seem like we're 12 years behind the United States when Obama was put in and people were saying, oh, change and everything. But this time, 
at this time, it seemed like people really meant it because they really did vote for yeah. a change. So, I mean, I, this is a little bit out of the order of you know, what we had in the, the notes going forward, but let's let's tuck into the economy side of this because sure. I, I think it's super duper important. Um, I don't know why I said it that way, but <laughs> it's super important. <laughs> um, I mean, so my... I've been to Ireland once, uh, and I was there in around the year 2000 uh, during the dot-com bubble burst. Um, and that was one of the most, um, in the U.S., it was one of the most lackadaisical uh, recessions I've ever seen. Uh, people lacked it. Like, the, the media and the political classes <laughs> acted like nothing was going on. <laughs> and, um, you know... You know, 20,000 people were getting laid off a day or something like that. And mm. But in Ireland, and, you know, I'm newly politically conscious, graduating from high school kind of thing. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? Uh, and then we come over to Ireland on vacation and like 50 people had been laid off from Hewlett Packard. And <laughs> the, the political system went into, you know, crisis mode. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think the... the Okay, here's my attempt at pronunciation. The the T shock. Uh, yes, yeah, very good. Yay. Okay, the T shock like <laughs> stepped down and like there was they formed a unity government and everyone was like, <laughs> dear friends, gather around. <laughs> like I, I don't know if they actually I don't remember exactly the specifics of the political ramifications, but you listened to the radio and it sounded like you know a bomb had gone off or something. Yeah. Um, my take on this whole thing is that um, both parties, like the entire political system, by the time I was there and now, are getting their political legitimacy from the economy being good, or at least being able to point to a bunch of numbers and say the economy's good. Uh, and so they've, you know, that's been a big part of, you know, and we're going to get into Northern Ireland in a bit. And I think that that's an important part of that conversation too. But, you know, a big part of Ireland's political stability has been the economy. So um, maybe, yeah. would you like to tell us a little bit? Do, I mean, this, I don't know if this is your area of specialty or, but could you well, tell us a little bit about Ireland's I economy? Mean, it's, it's, yeah, sure. Like it's, it's not my area of expertise, but like, when has that ever stopped me from talking <laughs> before? You're in good company. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, but but seriously, the uh, you'll notice there I mentioned the recession a few times, <laughs> and really, like 2020, the recent election we had is really a kind of a culmination of several years of people wanting a change, several years of people perceiving that their politicians just generally haven't done a good job with the economy, and this all kind of really started in 2007, 2008, when the crash started to happen across the world. And it turned out that our government had really not been very responsible. Now, a load of governments, like, just look yeah. at what happened to Greece. I mean, a load of governments were very irresponsible. And people and banks and everything else, they weren't acting in the way that they should. But this was really just... It just seemed like all the wheels came off the cart at the same time. Fianna Fáil went from being the most popular party... Like, it just seemed like there was a Finnafall constituency office everywhere. It seemed like there was TDs. Like, it was the biggest party in the country. It was successful. The economy seemed to be booming. 
Bertie Ahern, who was the Taoiseach at the time, was seen as successful. He was widely admired across the world and especially in, in Britain because of his work during the peace process with Northern Ireland. So he was still kind of riding the coattails of that mm-hmm. and everything just seemed to be going well. And then whatever day it was, I'm not going to pretend and be all dramatic like I know the exact day that the recession <laughs> happened, but some point in 2007 or 2008, it all just went wrong. And I was only, I think I was in the second or second last, yeah, I was in the second last year of high school, let's call it at the time. And I didn't really understand any of what was happening. All I knew was that everyone suddenly seemed to be losing their jobs and everything else. Yeah. And then gradually things got worse and worse hmm. to the point that by 2011, when there was an election then and Fianna Fáil and they were in coalition at that stage with the Green Party, mm-hmm. Fianna Fáil and the Green Party were absolutely demolished in that election in 2011. And that was literally the election where people said, Do you know what? Fianna Fáil have completely messed up the economy. They've been dishonest. They've been corrupt. They've been all these things. Like, there was nothing Fianna Fáil could do right. At one stage, Bertie Ahern, he resigned basically before it got too bad and he escaped the worst of it. And his successor as Taoiseach, Brian Cowan, is lar- widely regarded as the worst Taoiseach we've ever, we've ever had. But in okay. fairness to him, he had a pretty impossible job to do. Yeah. He had essentially arrived in a room that had been utterly destroyed by a party over the last 10 years. And he was told to clean it up with no mop or anything else. <laughs> and he just had to somehow... I'm quite proud of that metaphor, yeah, actually. But yeah, he had, to, he had to somehow he had to somehow fix everything, and it was just impossible. The tide of anger started to grow and grow and grow, and actually, there had been an election in 2007, in early 2007, before any of this was really known about. So, just as it happened, the Fianna Fáil government was fresh; it was relatively new, and obviously, they didn't have to call an election all that quickly. But yeah. at some point in 2011, I think early in that year the Greens decided that they basically were bowing out of the coalition and that meant that an election was essential. Fianna Fáil had never really been... Like, they'd been, obviously, in opposition, but this was completely different. In this election, they lost so many of their seats and they were succeeded by a coalition of Labour and Fine Gael. And now the Labour Party is someone we haven't really mentioned yet. It was kind of formed out of a series of kind of trade unions and uh, various different kind of social working initiatives and everything else. It wasn't really a, a very strong political movement for a long time. And in, in fact, in many cases, the Farmers Party did a lot better than the Labour Party. And it wasn't really until the last 30 years or so they started to become a really important political force. And after that point, then, they kind of, well, I mean, before this election, generally, Fine Gael was never big enough to enter into government. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. By itself, it would need a coalition partner. Mm-hmm. It would need some other party, and Labour normally fit the bill for that. Right. So during the campaign, I remember how angry people of my generation were people who had literally been told all these things that Fianna Fáil did wrong and there was less money and people's parents were getting laid off and how could they not see this coming and all this kind of thing and and basically all of this was laid at Fianna Fáil's feet and they really haven't recovered since yeah. and every every time now you see Michal Martin who is the uh, leader of Fianna Fáil now anytime you hear him talking or see him in a political debate it will get brought up at some point that Fianna Fáil destroyed the economy <laughs> and generally in, in Sinn Féin's case they get to do a double edged yeah. sword because not only can they say Fianna Fáil wrecked the economy they can also say that Fine Gael, when they got into power in 2011 to try and fix the mess, they made it not even worse, but they certainly didn't fix it right. completely or in the right way. So economics is very important, yeah. but to most people who don't fully understand how it all works, myself included, yeah. it's mostly used as a political weapon, as I'm sure yeah. it is in most countries. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's used as a political weapon for one side to beat the other, but... Sinn Féin has the advantage because Sinn Féin hasn't been in government in in the South before. So it's never had to face these challenges. And certainly it was not an easy task that Fine Gael kind of entered into, but the results speak for themselves. So in 2011, they were returned with a massive majority for the first time ever in the country, really. Fine Gael was a bigger party than Fianna Fáil, and Fianna Fáil essentially had to rebuild itself in opposition but the years that followed weren't especially easy for Fine Gael either because yeah. people had a certain amount of patience with them. But gradually, I think people started to realize that, number one, these economic problems were far more serious than people thought. And number two, like even while they pledged to fix it, the the ideas that they have to fix it aren't necessarily seen as particularly fair. Yeah. It didn't always seem like everyone was paying it was it was more kind of equality rather than equity, if that makes sense. There yeah. wasn't a whole lot of fairness. It was just kind of like everyone seemed to be struggling, except for those people who had all the money and nothing seemed to really phase them. So I, I want to come back to this point, but I want to give a little bit of context for people who are completely unfamiliar with like Irish history or Irish the Irish economy, sort of how we did with the political system and, and everything. Sure. If you go back to, you know, 1920, uh, when did the Civil War end? Uh, 1923? 1923. 23, yeah. So the country's wasted. 
they just yeah. they fought a war of independence and then a civil war, which was worse than the war of independence. And the first world war before that, <laughs> yes. don't forget oh, as well. God. Yeah, yeah. And then the 1916 uprising, which hollowed out a huge portion of the, the hegemonic city's city center. Mm. Uh, and then they yeah. lose their industrial base. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> as part yeah. of the the treaty of independence the, the yeah the treaty. And they lose lose all their ports as well yeah. pretty much so um ireland's mostly agricultural uh and mm-hmm. then you know you go forward from the 20s then you have in the 30s the great depression and then you know the rest of the world sort of gets this shot in the arm from killing each other but spending mm-hmm. money on the fact but ireland gets like economically isolated as a result of world war ii to a certain yep. extent and um you know they still don't like england very much but you know who else are they going to trade with but then germans are out there torpedoing ships left and right so um you come into the 1950s and Ireland is in really bad shape economically basically an agrarian country um but living right next to Europe uh and the United States is flooding Europe with money uh with the Marshall plan and everything skipping ahead a decade or two um Ireland joins the EU which mm-hmm. is probably the most intelligent decision a leader of ireland has ever made (laughs) yep absolutely absolutely it is so that was 1973 when ireland joined the eu and it joined alongside the uk and i think denmark Mm -hmm. i think that's correct so the three of them joined at the same time and that was now in addition to uh that was in addition to uh france and west germany and the benelux countries and italy so there was six and then the three of us joined and it became nine. So the uh, European community, as it was called then, or European economic community, had just gained three more members and it was nine members strong. So I remember when I was in Ireland, my first introduction to this whole concept was that we went to a museum in Cork, uh, which was, I think, sponsored by the Cork Butter Company, or uh, I forget what their name is, but the the biggest butter or dairy producer in the country is it avonmore <laughs> yeah i i don't uh that doesn't ring a bell but um oh it may was be. it Kerrygold? Kerrygold, yes Kerrygold Gold sponsored this museum and like ah. the first half of it is like this review of irish history and sort of the economics and stuff and then they join the eu and then they're like and then Kerrygold came along <laughs> <laughs> and started forming dairy cooperatives and and then it's just like the rest of it is about the the economic importance of butter in ireland's economy so i have no <laughs> idea how important that was but suffice it to say that ireland did very well in exporting its agricultural goods initially to the rest of europe and then transitioned that over to industrial and post-industrial economic development over the course of the next several decades to the point where you when you get to the 90s um you know they're they're talking about the celtic tiger um yeah do you want to talk a bit about what that that was well, the Celtic Tiger, it was now, in retrospect, a lot of it was built on foundations of sand. But at the time, through various loans and through essentially a lot of investment from the European Union, which had just been really properly established in 1993 with the Maastricht Treaty. But there was an awful lot of optimism, it seemed. Maybe this was just because the millennium was approaching and people all thought they were going to die. But <laughs> really, there was a lot of it seemed like there was a lot of money going around. 
And honestly, I mean, I was a child at the time, but I just remember that it was never hard to find work. Yeah. That both my parents were happily employed. Like, it, everything just seemed to kind of happen. Like, we didn't have loads of money or anything, but, you know, no one was talking about losing their jobs. Right. And that was the way that I would have seen it and interpreted it. And I grew up then into, obviously, the early 2000s. Everything seemed to be going well. Ireland was seen and talked about as a prosperous country. A wealthy country a country where it was quite expensive to live in and the wages weren't that high but like i suppose our charm made up for it or something yeah and it was all fine and i think a result of our reputation is really seen in the massive influx of eastern european uh, migrants in mm -hmm. the early 2000s most of that was happened by in 2004 the eu essentially expanded into eastern europe right and once that happened then there was freedom of movement uh, for a load of different nationalities who really probably had never thought of going to Ireland before. Maybe they yeah. didn't even know Ireland existed before. <laughs> but for whatever reason, they chose Ireland in so many, so, such a such a large amount of people arrived and in such a short space of time that in some places it actually changed the demographics. But to this day in Ireland, and I think, now I might get corrected on this, but I remember hearing or reading this before that the second most common language in Ireland is actually Polish, followed by uh, Mandarin, and then I think Irish is like eighth or ninth on right, the list or right. something like that. So it, it has... Um, it has really, like, when we talk about the Celtic Tiger, obviously I don't really, like, I'm not an economic historian or anything right. like that, so I don't know how it happened or kind of, like, what sustained it. But what I do remember is what it was like to live through it. Yeah. And it seemed like a very positive time. So I'll speak to that stuff a little bit. I'm, I'm not an economic historian, but I was a little bit more conscious at the time, I guess. Of, sure. And I had, uh, <laughs> and I should say that I had a bunch of... Uh, online Irish friends who were older than me. And, you know, so we were, I, I was talking to people over there. Uh, so a big part of it is just the good, the real economic foundations of Ireland's success post the transition away from the ag agrarian economy. Uh, you're talking about an English speaking country that's connected to Europe, um, which is cheaper to deal with. The, uh, the people are educated. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's cheaper to deal with than England. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, so it basically became the, like, um, what well, the, the IT center, the, the, the call center of Europe to a certain extent mm. for all these American companies who wanted oh, to, yeah. to deal with, deal with Europe. They'd set up satellite offices in Ireland and then the tech bubble burst and that, that kind of undermined things a little bit, but, um, things were kind of able to keep going because a lot of businesses had already been established. The economy was doing relatively well. And in the, uh, and I said, should say that the, the Irish government sort of to their credit recognized that this is sort of what was going on. And so they established a very quote unquote, business friendly environment with very low taxes, very low levels of regulation and things like that. And then, uh, this all sort of transitioned to this, the, the inevitable, uh, neoliberal self-perpetuating economic situation of, uh, a housing bubble mm -hmm. in the, in the Dublin area, uh, where, you know, you mentioned land prices and the cost of living, uh, being high. This is something that people that I knew in, in Ireland were complaining about going back to, you know, the late nineties, the mid two thousands. Mm. And it's still a huge problem as well. Yeah. I, I mean, at this point, it's probably the thing that I'm, I'm hearing 
talked about as one of the main reasons for Sinn Féin's success. So that's getting ahead of us. Yeah. Um, you know, so, but it, it, it was a bubble. And when you got to the, uh, you know, 2007, the same forces to some extent that were happening in the United States and around the world were happening very strongly in microcosm in Ireland. One of the things that I'm less sure about is how... Um, government spending factored in on all this because uh, i know a lot like with greece they were throwing tons of money at their social safety network as a way to maintain social stability because that country also never recovered from their civil war <laughs> um yeah. uh, my my understanding is that ireland's um social safety network was never particularly expensive although it's better than the u.s <laughs> uh do you do you have any uh, thoughts on that like how how like how much of what happened in 2007 was they had created a debt crisis for themselves by spending too much on social safety network stuff or and how much um, of it was just like they had no idea how to run the economy once they had already cut all the taxes to zero oh i think it's the latter to be okay. honest benjamin yeah <laughs> definitely like um i mean yes it's we have welfare like it's a welfare state but i mean it certainly didn't feel like there was a load of money being spent in that area. It just felt like there was a lot of money being spent everywhere and often not particularly well. Ah. I remember there was uh, several different committees founded and several different investigations launched into like corruption and you scratch my back, I'll give you planning permission for this massive industrial complex that it turns out you spend half a million or half a billion on and then you end up just not going through with or whatever uh. all sorts of scandals happened and i just think that it was almost like they didn't expect things to go so well and almost in spite of themselves then when things did go well they didn't exactly plan for rainy days let's just say so yeah. then when the rainy days came and the kitty was essentially empty then they have to kind of fly by the seat of their pants and they flew right into the wall. <laughs> yeah. So they so they were spending money, but not on, you know, social services or the army or, or anything that we would usually assume a government should be spending on. They were trying to, quote unquote, stimulate the economy during a prosperous period by doing like one-off industrial projects and things like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, like you need to just take a look around the country. I mean, our infrastructure is still not particularly good. Like if you go outside of the actual Dublin area, like bus yeah. services or trains or anything like that, it's essentially impossible to get around unless, unless you drive really in this country or, yeah. or you live on the commuter belt, then you're, you're pretty much safe. But yeah, there's an awful lot of undeveloped land, underdeveloped land, like there's an awful lot of kind of I, I mean like our water system our sewage system is victorian era like oh, a lot of it is really really old and like that's another another thing just to get back to earlier on we were talking about Fine Gael when they took over in 2011 they quickly ran into scandal after scandal and one of those scandals was when they set up a company called Irish Water which was supposed to be like a semi-state body kind of like our ESB controls our electricity that kind of thing it was supposed uh -huh. to con it was supposed to control our water it was supposed to uh like fix pipes uh develop infrastructure that kind of thing sounds like a nice idea but then they decided that in order to power this super thing they were going to start charging people for water and mm. they weren't going to like 
take because people already paid for water through through various right. different taxes it just it was laid out and like not specified as water it's specified as like uh water inclusive right. of etc etc uh but it, it like by bringing this along now people who criticized it could say well we're paying for water twice and the go- attitude of the government at the time saying that they turn people's taps off if they didn't pay really didn't go down very well so this was about I think yeah. 2014 15 kind of time so that really destroyed the popularity or the honeymoon period of the government and then when it came to 2016 then the uh, Fine Gael government and Labour neither of them could get enough seats to form a government neither of them could get into the high 70s because at that point there was 156 not 160 right. seats you needed in the doll so they were in trouble then so what ended up happening was after several weeks of wrangling about it Fine Gael decided to have a minority government which would be supported by Fianna Fáil in what was called a confidence and supply agreement whereby Fianna, Fianna Fáil would essentially vote and support in the doll in terms of votes and that kind of thing proposals that Fine Gael put forward now they didn't always support them but by and mm-hmm. large they did most of the time and once Brexit happened and it became obvious that we needed a kind of stable like functioning legislature to actually like defend ourselves against things and represent interests abroad and stuff the confidence and supply agreement essentially just became it faded into the background and it kept on going but for all intents and purposes one could argue and Sinn Féin was to do so and continues to do so now that what you really had was yeah. pretty much a coalition of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil and that this was just the first step like imagine if you look at that in the history books a confidence and supply agreement for four years and then Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil go into coalition yeah. together in 2020 like I'm not saying that that's going to happen but if you saw those things happening you would think yeah. 10 years later oh of course right. what a natural order of things you know so they're they're almost putting their foot in it in, in some way because they're not necessarily realizing how bad these things look to people who might not be the biggest fans of theirs. So with that, I think let's let's start to uh, talk about the the six hundred pound elephant in the room. Uh, let's talk about Sinn Fein in Northern Ireland. Sure. Everyone who's listening to this probably knows um, Sinn Fein just did very well in the last elections. We've mentioned them several times already in this conversation in a couple different contexts. Um, but so let's talk about where did Sinn Fein come from, and you know, of course, the answer is well, let's go back to 1916. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, you'd be surprised now, and the answer to where did Sinn Fein come from is actually a man by the name of Arthur Griffith in 1905. Right during that period, there was a real interest in Gaelic revival and a revival of the Irish language and Irish sports and that kind of thing, almost as a counterpoint to the increasing Anglo- Anglicization of Ireland itself and the real gradual extinction of the Irish language. People who were proud of the Irish language wanted to preserve it. They sought to do it through this Ga- Gaelic revival movement. And Sinn Féin was one of those organizations that tried to further that along. Now, this like Sinn Féin would have faded into obscurity only for the fact that they started to get fairly well known and then when it came time for the rising itself in 1916 
Now, for a variety of reasons, historians still debate this, it started to be called the Sinn Féin Rebellion, even though Sinn Féin and Arthur Griffith were kind of horrified at the idea that this thing had even happened. Now, of course, there was people who were members of Sinn Féin who had taken part in the Rising, but to suggest that this organization it would be like the nfl launching a rising today in ireland you know (laughs) it's it's bizarre to think of but because of the situation at the time and probably because the british didn't have very much information but had a lot of newspaper kind of coverage they decided to just perpetuate this idea of the Sinn Féin rebellion and it stuck for whatever reason and Sinn Féin just went with the flow and actually started to become staffed then with a lot of people who had taken part in the Rising, such as Eamon de Valera. And over the next couple of years, literally until it was late 1917, early 1918, they started to really change Sinn Féin from the inside out. And all those people who had taken part in the Rising pretty much got senior positions within Sinn Féin. So Sinn Féin starts to become something completely different to what it had originally been. So... To review, there was the Irish Republican Brotherhood, which became the Irish IRA. They're completely on the other side of the room. Sinn Féin is a sports club, which sort of becomes a political party by accident, and then is completely infiltrated by the IRB and basically taken over. And then that's the only joint that they have, is that they share members, basically. Yeah, pretty much. And I mean, around the time of the rising, several... People who took part in the Rising were part of all sorts of different, like, Irish revival movements. I mean, generally, if you're willing to resort to violence for the sake of the Irish independence ideal, you're going to also be members of these different organizations that are Pacific in nature, too. So, so generally then, of course, this is all in the backdrop of the war as well. And actually, what Sinn Féin manages to do very well out of is the conscription uh, you could call it a crisis in Ireland where the rumour starts to come about that Britain is going to try and introduce conscription into Ireland and they actually what well at least the perception is that when Sinn Féin organises an awful lot of opposition to this idea and Britain drops the idea Sinn Féin gets a lot of political credit for this and they really do very well um, kind of their their name, their kind of their fame starts to grow a good bit to the point that by the December 1918 election, so an election mostly known for the kind of universal suffrage idea, well, to a certain mm-hmm. extent anyway. So women were given the vote. All men were pretty much allowed to vote. And now if you're a woman with a certain amount of property and you're under the age of, you're over the age of 30, I think you were allowed to vote. So they weren't quite willing to go all the way, but this was across the United Kingdom. And now it kind of, this is why it kind of mirrors what happened before, because in this December 1918 election, Sinn Féin gets something, they get a vast majority of the seats. They get something like 70 something out of 100 and something seats. And those other seats are pretty much taken by the Unionist Party. So Mm -hmm. if you were to look at a map of Ireland at this point, it would be covered in Sinn Féin green. And the interesting point is the party that they pushed out, Sinn Féin defeated heavily the Home Rule or Irish Irish Parliamentary Party, as they were called. Mm -hmm. Irish Parliamentary Party were the party that were essentially arguing for Home Rule. And Home Rule was this idea that 
Ireland would be a dominion within the British Empire. So it would control its own local affairs, but it would have its own parliament in Dublin. Because at that time, Ireland was ruled from Westminster and had been since the 1798 rebellion, pretty much. Right, right. So all that background is basically to show that 1918's election was a hugely significant moment for Ireland. And this nationalist Republican party who upon its foundation was nothing like that kind of idea but which now had become (laughs) something that Irish people had really kind of come to believe in and that is shown by their electoral success and don't forget as well Sinn Féin were making a very big song and dance about their participation in the rising they were making a very big deal about people who had died people who had been martyred etc etc and they effectively used this electoral victory as their democratic mandate and then they took this mandate all the way into the following year in 1919 where the first shots of the war for independence were fired and right. it begins and then it was either the case of you're a Sinn Féiner, you're IRA, you're fighting against the British or you're pro-British and it was right. it was very hard to kind of stay neutral in a situation like that and a lot of people obviously didn't want to stay neutral um right but uh, so that's that was the situation. And then to take the story further, then, like I said, uh, Sinn Féin still exists as a political force. Then in 1921, things get a bit more complicated because Cumann the Gael splits off from Sinn Féin as the party who essentially makes the peace with Britain. And they become effectively the, the only real party in the state for the moment. And Sinn Féin kind of fade into the background and then they participate in the Civil War and it doesn't look particularly good for them because it's obviously a very unpopular act. And then Fianna Fáil splits off from Sinn Féin in 1926 and pretty much all of its major political heavy hitters go with it. And then Sinn Féin in the 30s and 40s starts to kind of fade into the background a bit. And really when Eamon de Valera is Taoiseach then in the 30s and 40s, he understands that when it comes like when it comes time to like make sure Ireland is a neutral country he can't risk having the IRA negotiating with the Nazis so he starts to pretty much imprison a load of IRA members and that's seen (laughs) as a very that's seen as a very big deal by the old guard of Sinn Féin who saw who might have seen like Eamon de Valera in a kind of romantic way as still something of a political ally something who would be soft on them and tough on the British that kind of thing but when he started to do this Sinn Féin like kind of really turned against him but at this stage Sinn Féin were pretty much irrelevant and it was only really in the 60s and 70s in Northern Ireland that Sinn Féin and the IRA as well kind of resurrected themselves and started to present themselves as kind of like the defenders of like oppressed Catholics and everything right that's a whole other story (laughs) well so so let's briefly get into that so the the treaty that ended the civil war in 1923 split off the the counties of northern ireland and um theoretically they were still part of the united kingdom but uh under the british government uh they sort of just wanted it to not have to worry about it because they're still licking their wounds from world war 1 and trying to put their country back together and all that stuff and sure. so they they put it under a local administration which ended up being dominated by uh local protestants mm-hmm. uh and who you know th- there's a you know 
who threw the first punch kind of question to this, but basically, as you fade out from the War of Independence, Sinn Féin and the IRA have been fighting the British, and the British are still there in Northern Ireland, so they don't necessarily stop fighting, but they're not getting support from the rest of the IRA and Sinn Féin anymore, because in their, what became the Republic of Ireland, they're busy fighting each other and founding their own country. And they, they sort of don't need to get embroiled in a war with England at this point. Mm -hmm. And so that chunk of Sinn Féin and the IRA continues on, um, trying to resist this Protestant domination in Northern Ireland. But, um, because they're, you know, possibly due to bigotry, but also possibly due to the fact that there are people, you know, with guns throwing bombs and stuff, uh, the Protestant administration basically denies Catholics in the Northern Ireland basic civil rights mm -hmm. <laughs> that everywhere else in the UK they are guaranteed. And that all just sort of simmered away for the next several decades until you get into the 60s when... You know, inspired by the civil rights movement in the United States, uh, a peaceful movement for civil rights starts in Northern Ireland that then results in, you know, one thing led to the other and the British army shot a bunch of people. <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden, IRA and Sinn Féin are relevant again. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Yeah, I mean, people will obviously dispute and say who fired first and everything. And yes, it was quite a like a, a restrictive kind of society unless you were protestant and in many cases unless you were a member of the orange order you couldn't really go very far politically or really socially in northern ireland for a very long time in the 60s physically like they had literal brick walls uh you know in, in many places they're still there literal brick walls separating out oh, neighborhoods yeah. to keep people away from each other yeah i absolutely. mean it's you know it's very apartheid <laughs> uh kind of thing is um, yeah not quite yeah, it that really bad was. but you know a lot of the signifiers are there it was it's very strange to to read about now uh as something that you know just over the water in scotland and in england like no one would think of doing anything like that uh and theoretically they're all part of the same united kingdom but well that's the thing yeah and it's interesting as well to see britain take a very hands-off approach for a very long time and it wasn't really until about 1968, 1969, when it kind of all exploded onto the international scene that the Brits realized, right, we really have yeah. to do something now because this is really <laughs> yeah. getting out of hand. And that that was kind of the uh, that was kind of the turning point where Britain became much more actively involved. And in 1972, they tried power sharing and it didn't really work with the result that then the British had to directly rule Northern Ireland and they had to close Stormont, which is the Legislative Assembly in Northern Ireland. And the closing of Stormont isn't exactly an unfamiliar scene to people who who uh, who know of that institution now. But at the time, it was a big deal because it was it really marked the end of the Unionist total control over Northern Ireland. And it, it marked the beginning, a very gradual beginning of a new age. And don't forget... The Republic of Ireland is trying to get in on this as well because you can't really have discussions with Catholics and with uh, Irish-speaking people and people who claim to be members of the IRA, etc., who proclaim that they want to unify the North with the South as yeah. their ultimate goal if 
the government in the south doesn't want anything to do with them so you have to you have to be very delicate and yeah. very careful you you have to speak for their rights but also try and find a way to make everyone stay calm yeah and i mean the the south's position in this is really interesting because again both of these parties are descendants of Sinn fein and they're you know i think it's in the constitution that they don't recognize the British right to rule. Did did that get? I forget if that existed or if that got taken out. But well, that that was still in the Constitution at that stage, but at, like not anymore. No, not anymore. But you know, it, yeah. it's a it's a pretty strong part of the narrative of a country that fought for its independence. That you know, you've got that same power still on the same island. You know, yeah, and it's a very easy argument to make as well. I mean, notwithstanding the obvious reasons for the British being there, I mean, they to this day, I think, don't yeah. really want to be there. It's more for the fact that people who live there want to be British, and just like it's the case on the Falkland Islands yeah. or wherever else, you can't ignore their genuine desire to be British, just like you can't ignore anyone's genuine right to be any part of a nationality. You have to listen to that and respect that. No matter how right. much it costs, and it costs Britain yeah. a bomb now, and it cost them just as much, or if not more, back then, especially when things started to hit the fan. Yeah. So to su- to summarize, things hitting the fan. You know, the troubles started after Bloody Sunday, and then you know it was a full on guerrilla war with you know bombs going off, people getting assassinated, uh, you know, actual armed units in the streets and tanks, and you know. Uh, whatever and so this is the 60s the 70s the 80s um you know off and on the entire time uh 2000 odd people were killed in the troubles um and meanwhile in the south as we just talked about ireland has joined the eu and the economy's doing gangbusters and all of a sudden you know and this is part of the the legitimacy argument that I was making before. Ireland's not this backwater agrarian, you know, just left the Middle Ages kind of thing anymore. They're a real country. They've got, you know, economy that's doing very well once you get into the 90s. And people in Northern Ireland start going, well, why are we doing this anymore? Um, you know, the, the, the arguments of both sides start seeming kind of pointless <laughs> when you've got, uh, yeah. you've got decades and decades of mutual killings going on that no one's happy with. And, you know, the unionists are saying, we don't want to join Ireland. That's a bunch of backwards hicks. But then you look south of the border and the economy's doing gangbusters. And then the, you know, the Catholics are going, you know, we want to join them because, Catholicism but like <laughs> it's a modern country it's not like yeah so it's also yeah so culturally as well they would have seen very similarly but essentially we can fast forward the yes. story to 1998 when the Good Friday Agreement was signed and that was a really pivotal moment in not just the peace process but also Anglo-Irish relations as well and Bertie Ahern played a key part in that yes. when I mentioned him earlier he would certainly milk his participation in that. And the irony was he had a photo of Patrick Pierce in his <laughs> office. And Patrick Pierce or Patrick Pierce was one of the major instigators of the 1916 Rising. So anyone who's listened to yes. my series on that cheap plug will know how I feel about <laughs> that event and yeah. the people who took part in it. But it does seem a bit contradictory. And it was it was awkward as well to say on the one hand that the likes of the violence instigated by the IRA in the North 
was unacceptable, whereas the violence that was instigated by the IRB during the Rising, which nobody asked yeah. for either at the time, was acceptable, you know? But that's yeah. <laughs> uh, that's my own bias sure. seeping in. I'm probably going to kneecapped for that. But... I think it's fair to say that everyone who even touched the Good Friday Agreement milked it for all the political capital. Uh, I don't, you know, the, uh, the oh, Clinton yeah. administration, whenever they came to an Irish-American community, they'd be like, look at the great work we did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but with good reason in a way because it's it was 30 yes. years in the making and it actually set up a lot of a lot of uh kind of expectations a lot of institutions and a lot of common understanding which still exists to this day like to this day it's still yeah. being mentioned and it was being mentioned an awful lot during the brexit yes. process too mostly because of some of the stipulations it has for example if if either Britain or Northern Ireland or Ireland want there to be United Ireland, if they want Northern Ireland to essentially join the Republic, for that to happen, both sides have to agree to it. So that means all of Northern Ireland, or at least a majority of Northern Ireland, have to agree to essentially end their participation in the United Kingdom and join the Republic, whatever whatever form that <laughs> joining will take. It's not as simple a case as kind of, oh, well, Sinn Féin might be in power in the South and they're in power in the North, so therefore there will be right. a united Ireland in the next few years. It's all about demographics and how people yes. identify with one side or the other, just like it's always been. And the key thing with the Good Friday Agreement was that all sides were at least supposed to disarm, except for, with some exceptions, some of the more extreme organisations they were supposed to disarm and basically say, right, violence isn't the answer and politics is how we're going to get this done right. one way or another, whether that's coexisting with one another or advancing our interests and making United Ireland happen or what have you. So that was what the Good Friday Agreement was supposed to achieve. And it, well, I mean, you can say that it did do its job because since yeah. then the troubles have ended and any time there's any flicker of violence of, of any sort, there's widespread condemnation. No one wants anything to do with violence in the North anymore. Yeah. And uh, rightfully so, thankfully. Yes, totally. 100%. The political ramification of that, though, is that out of the woodwork come all these IRA members who put down their weapons, put them in a big pile and burn them, and then say, right, I'm going to run for office now. What yeah. political party am I going to join? Sinn Féin. <laughs> <laughs> so that sort of brings us up to the question. So now how now we have Sinn Féin back in the South, even though they were irrelevant for most of a century. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, really, I mean, you can fast forward the story again. They started to become popular in the South because of their success in the North. And they were seen for a long time as a kind of a fringe party, mostly in opposition because they were never really big enough to be anything else. And mm -hmm. through their associations with a kind of a dark past that generally they were perceived as having kind of IRA connections, pretty intense connections. And it didn't yeah. help that a lot of the public faces of the party who people had seen on the news before in some way connected to the IRA were now being seen as Sinn Féin leaders. Jerry Adams being probably the most famous, who to yeah. this day still denies that he was in the IRA, even though it's pretty much guaranteed <laughs> that he was. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I give him all I give him all credit for being, you know, the the person who took the step to put down the weapons and everything. Sure. But of course he was in the IRA. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now and I think one point to draw out here 
is that, you know, I think a fair number of Irish Americans might be surprised to know this, but, you know, the IRA aren't particularly popular in Ireland. No, they're not. They're not popular <laughs> at all. And that's the thing is that the uh, the issue with, with Sinn Féin to this day, I mean, let's just put it out there. People are worried in Ireland that they still have connections to the <laughs> IRA and people maintain that. I even saw an article the other day some uh, senior British politician said that he believes strongly that there is a essentially a coterie of former IRA people basically advising Sinn Féin what to do. But I mean, the way I and a lot of people who I see in common with politically look at it is Sinn Féin has come a very long way yeah. since the whole the peace process and everything they laid down their weapons as was agreed they entered into politics as was agreed and to kind of treat them as dirty laundry now because they did what you asked yeah. i mean when's it going to be acceptable to associate with them politically like 30 years yeah. 40 years like it's there's never going to be a right time it's always going to be one party will take the first step that'll normalize it and then everyone will move on because on the one hand of course you can say oh well i don't like their past it, it kind of unsettles me but then on the other you can say well if we never recognize them politically and if we never actually team up with them there's a fairly large demographic of people who were just ignoring in the yeah. country especially because Sinn Féin now is presenting itself as the true kind of left-wing yeah. party with the kind of decline of the actual Labour Party, who now only has six seats in yeah. the doll, having gone really downhill, Sinn Féin are now the second largest party in the doll, with, I think, 37 seats. So they have far more power and influence than they used to have. And, I mean, I, I thought different ways about talking about this, because it's probably clear that I don't... I mean, I never buy into black and white stories. I'm sure that there are people in Sinn Féin that do have IRA mm -hmm. sympathies and who are reluctant to admit that the IRA did anything wrong, who want to blame it all on the British, etc, etc. But I also think that there is a lot of people who are genuinely hardworking in Sinn Féin who really want to make yeah. a difference and who really want to bring socialist re socialist principles, socialist, like, a, bring a socialist republic about in Ireland. So I think, I think you have to take kind of the rough with the smooth and any extremist kind of scary news you hear kind of take with a pinch of salt. So I, I think it's worth saying that um, so we, we have three political parties in Ireland now, all of whom are sh former parts of Sinn Féin. Uh, and it, it's yes. worth saying a little <laughs> bit about why this part of Sinn Féin is center left and the other two are center right. Um, they, they did spend the last 20 years in uh, in a political context in Northern Ireland developing. And, uh, you know, it's worth saying that in that political context, the unionists sort of adopted, you know, there was this, um, you know, there's the ethno-religious context of it, but there's more than that. Uh, and the unionists sort of developed into a far right uh, kind of political situation where, and yeah. Sinn Féin has developed into a center left kind of political situation where uh, I, I don't know how fair this is to say, but I would say that the unionists have been infiltrated by American evangelicals <laughs> to a certain extent. It could be very, um, yeah. And Sinn Féin has, you know, sort of, you know, uh, opposition parties tend to push off of each other, except in Ireland, I guess. But um, uh, as, you know, as the unionists have drifted that way, Sinn Féin has burnished their, you know, 
Republican credentials, I guess, in the classic Irish version of it and said, you know, actually, we're we're not a Catholic party. We're a secular party and we, we believe in abortion and gay marriage and all this stuff now. Um, and so that's that's pushed them left, which is it's been an interesting mm. process to watch. Uh, and now and now yeah. their leader is uh, Mary Lou McDonald is not even from Northern Ireland, which is just another important point to make. She's she's from Dublin, and I believe, this could be incorrect, but I believe she was brought up Protestant. She certainly went to a a private school anyway. Um, But she's very articulate. She seems very empathetic. She seems a world removed from the generation of Gerry Adams. Like, she obviously was not in the IRA. She obviously did not get involved in any unsavory activity so people like her as a politician because she seems to want to make a difference and don't forget Sinn Féin has been in opposition for so long in the south that it's been able to basically identify itself as the other of the two main parties so particularly with the economic crash and everything else and policies of austerity that were brought in and bad tax ideas that were brought in and everything Sinn Féin could identify itself as being against that as being for the people as being for the kind of socialist state and obviously that message resonated with people to an extent that it has never resonated before and obviously as well Sinn Féin didn't even realize how much of an appetite there was. Yeah, I mean, like we said, if they had presented a longer list, they would have done better. (laughs) Definitely, they would have. And I'm sure now in the future, they will put out more candidates. But they were operating on the kind of previous performance in the local elections in kind of mid-2019, where, interestingly enough, some candidates that they ran in that, uh, those local elections, some of those candidates only got like 200 votes which is nothing. But then they ran yeah. those same candidates for the doll and they got elected. So there you go. Yeah. They just didn't want him to be mayor or whatever. Well, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just looking through my notes, I think we've hit on everything. Um, I guess just what's next. Right. Um, you know, yeah. What happens yeah. now? Well, what happens now is probably kind of the question everyone's asking in Ireland. And I mean, I wrote, my notes to the questions sorry to break the fourth wall listeners but when when benjamin sent me these questions i basically wrote responses to them and the the answer i wrote to this question was not sure let's see in a week and sure enough a week later <laughs> still no word <laughs> uh, now things are a little bit more clear-cut in some ways like people are saying more emphatically finna fail Sorry, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are saying that they're not going to go into coalition with Sinn Féin and they're emphatic about that, but they're supposedly having talks now over the next week together. Now, who knows what will happen from that? Supposedly, there's a lot of yeah. resistance in both parties to a grand coalition, but who knows what might happen? If they yeah. if they feel there's no other way other than an election, then they could well go for it. And uh, in that situation, obviously, Sinn Féin looks amazing and they can capitalize upon that in the next election. And some people I have talked to have actually seen this grand coalition idea as a good thing in the long run. It'll be painful in the short term because it'll feel like our voices weren't heard. But then in the long term, 
Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael can never say in the future that they're fundamentally different parties because you can't very yeah. well go into coalition with someone who's fundamentally different from you because you change and shape each other in that way. So some people see, if they do go into coalition, some people see that as a kind of first step and a hop, skip and a jump to a Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael unity of the two parties. Now, who knows if that'll actually happen? But if it does, yeah. at least foreign observers won't have to say the four words all the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, from looking at the math of the thing, uh, Sinn F- the only way Sinn Féin could get a majority would be getting every single party member that's not one of those three parties. And there's a, a massive, there's like 19 independent yes, TDs. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> that's, that's the They're problem. never going to do it. No, they can't do it. And even if they got all the independents they still would not have really enough. It'll be far too shaky a, yeah. a government to work. And they know that. She tried, Mary Lou MacDonald tried to do some political yeah. maneuvering at the beginning and maintained that the people voted for change and everything, so she was going to help bring it about. But right. it's it's fairly self-evident. And it was evident from the beginning that while her party is the second largest party, it's not. it's just not big enough to actually take control fully. And and traditionally, it's been rare that one party has governed by itself. I mean, one party to have 80 seats, to have half the seats of the whole of the doll would be very unusual and kind of almost unthinkable in this day and age. Yeah, there would be some kind of coalition expected. So the flip side of this is that I don't see Finna Fall and Fine Gael. I don't think they have any alternative other than finding a way to work with each other because if they hold another election, they're going to get slaughtered. Well, that's the thing. And see, <laughs> they know that as well. So in in some ways, it might be less painful for them to just swallow it and just go for a coalition together, whatever that might mean. Now, that would be interesting yeah. because for several reasons, but it will be the first time this has ever happened, just like Sinn Féin exploded on the electoral scene it's 2020's election for the first time ever. So it's an election of, of firsts in many ways. But, like, it's just very hard to imagine that. But I'm sure all these things are hard to imagine before they yeah. happen for the first time. Yeah, exactly. All right, Zach, thanks so much for this this extensive conversation. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been great fun. And, you know, I would actually love to... I could easily talk for several more hours about... <laughs> pretty much anything but i suppose you have to you have to finish up at some point yes definitely (laughs) definitely all right uh thanks for for doing this and thanks everybody for listening and uh we'll probably catch you some other time Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.